I will uh, be talking about a, a meltdown of epic proportions in the cryptocurrency world and the legal ramifications of it. This is like Enron meets Bernie Madoff. We'll get to that after this on WGN. And uh, we got a quick show today. We take you up to Northwestern football at the top of the hour. We're going to get through two topics here today pretty quickly, uh, although we, I'm looking forward to breaking this down because it is one of the biggest stories in the economic world right now, really in in the country, in the world, about cryptocurrency and uh, this FTX meltdown. John Nagel joins us right now from Gordon Law Group. And uh, John, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on again, John. And when we were chatting just before we went on, I mean, I called it like, it's like Bernie Madoff, Enron combined together as one. Is it that big of a deal in the crypto world? It's a pretty big deal. Uh, they had about $50 billion in assets, and they're declaring bankruptcy now. So it's a, it's a big deal. Enron was only at $60 billion, so it's similar in size. All right. So first of all, I know this is definitionally it's hard to grasp what cryptocurrency is. So in layman's terms, in the simplest way possible, what is FTX? So FTX is one of the largest trading platforms in the world. Um, you're able to exchange your coins with other coins on the platform, and they sit there uh, almost as they would in a, uh, in a bank. Okay. And, but you put your, your currency, American dollars, let's say. I put $10,000 into FTX, and it spits out that I have blank amount of coins. So what you would do is uh, instead of putting it directly into FTX, what you'd be doing is putting the, your currency into a coin. Uh, we'll say Bitcoin, Ethereum, uh, one of the more popular ones. And you would no longer have U.S. dollars in FTX. Right. You would be holding Ethereum or your Bitcoin tokens in FTX. But if Ethereum went up in value and I said I want it back, I would then get American dollars back if I wanted uh, if, to, if I wanted so to sell it? So what you would have to do is you'd have to sell your Ethereum. Right. And then you could withdraw your your cash after uh, the sell went through. So it's not all that different than the way I buy stocks, like on E-Trade or something. Exactly. Very similar. Okay. So when all of a sudden there were... Well, how did it start? What was the rumors going around? Yeah. So uh, last weekend, uh, Binance um, let out a tweet that... And Binance is what? Yeah, Binance is one of the major competitors of FTX. It's uh, the largest uh, trading platform in the world. And they let out a tweet that... Oh, there could be trouble over there. It seems like they're making some risky investments uh, with their customers' um, funds that they're holding. Right. And I just want to stop for a second because just like a bank or just like any other thing, they take the money that you are storing in there and they use that to make money for themselves. I mean, that's how it works. Uh, Absolutely. And in this case, it turns out that the owner of FTX also has another investment fund uh, called Almeida. And he put a lot of money into Almeida, and they were more aggressive in their investments, and the funds were not available to FTX after that. Because they went away. They were bad investments. It, pretty much. Okay. <laughs> I know we're still learning as we go on this. So, Because someone just texted in. So ask, where did the $50 billion go? Does FTX have any of the assets? So that's where the assets were. That's where the customer's money had gone, were into investments that were risky and into this other company mm-hmm. that he owns that were extremely risky and it's all gone well hopefully it's not gone mm-hmm. uh, but right now it's not liquid and if you are trying to withdraw your investments that you had in ftx it, you weren't able to this week and now that they filed bankruptcy everything's on pause uh, none of it's accessible to any of the cu- customers right now and i also saw earlier this morning that about 600 million dollars was withdrawn from FTX, and it might might have been a hack or 
might have been somebody on the inside pulling their funds out. So it's so that complicates it even further. It gets a little messy. Yes. Okay. Three one two nine eight one seventy two hundred six real. I appreciate that text because I think this can get over people's heads, including my own. So if we need to slow down or recap, you just let us know. Okay. Is there any sense of how many customers this is that that have been affected? I mean, oh, thousands, right? Y- yes. Yes. Uh, it's. It's pretty terrible because everyone who had their funds tied up in there, they're, they're stuck right now. Mm-hmm. Um, the, their next step would be to uh, file a claim in the bankruptcy proceedings to state what they had tied up. And these don't move quickly. Like It's going to be months and months before there's any chance of them having any of their funds returned. So mm-hmm. they're just waiting stagnant right now. John Nagel from Gordon Law Group. Okay, let me just... Just to reset this all, in 1929, when the stock market crashed and everyone went to the banks and they wanted money out of the banks, uh, we bled the banks dry, essentially, right? And Mm -hmm. people lost their life savings because the banks had made investments. They were invested in the very stock market that brought everything else down. That's a very simplistic way of looking at it. The U.S. government then reformed the way banking works so that that money that you put into a bank – is insured, right? That you will yeah. be able to get that money back no matter what, right? Mm-hmm. FTX is nothing like that, right? Is there any laws or rules so, or regulations that govern this? So right now, the regulations are very loose. Um, that's something that will be coming up, I think, now that the uh, midterm elections are complete, is that there needs to be some sort of regulation in place for the U.S. exchanges. And right now, because it's up in the air, they don't know what type of regulations are going to be um, put in place by the government a lot of these exchanges are establishing their headquarters uh, overseas where U.S. laws will not affect them. Okay. And this is similar to what happened with FTX. I mean, their headquarters in the Bahamas, uh, their, their main headquarters, they also have FTX U.S., but their main corporate headquarters is overseas where they would not be impacted by any type of uh, regulation that the U.S. government wouldn't put in place for these um, cryptocurrency exchanges. Are there any exchanges that are based in the United States that are somewhat more regulated, or does this... This raised the doubts in people's minds. Oh my gosh, are all of their, are, are are all cryptocurrency exchanges at risk? Well, I, I think right now there really isn't that much regulation that in, in place. So that's something that a lot of government agencies right now are battling over who has control over cryptocurrency. Is it going to be you know the the SEC or is it uh, some other entity that's going to be created to oversee how these transactions are uh, regulated by the federal government? Uh, Right now, there's not the safeguards that there are in place for, for banks, where you have to have the funds available for your clients to withdraw at their, at their request. Mm-hmm. And without that, these companies are able to invest it as they choose. Aggressively, and, often. Yes, yes. And <laughs> when their clients get nervous and want to withdraw the funds, they're not available all the, all the time, like we saw here with FTX. Now, there are other exchanges that are have a more reputable reputation, I would say. At least that's what I've been told. But didn't FDX have a reputable re- reputation a couple it, weeks ago? <laughs> it, it, it seemed like it, right? Like they, um, their their name is on the uh, Miami Heat stadium. They had a lo- bunch of Super Bowl commercials. Oh wow! So uh, I think all the umpires in the uh, major leagues had FTX on their uh, jerseys. So they've invested a lot of money in building up this reputation as a trustworthy company. And in the last week, it crumbled down very quickly. Uh, their uh, CEO on Monday said. Relax. This is under control. And then on Tuesday, there's rumors about them being bought by Binance. And then Binance said, no, we're not going to do this after uh-huh. taking a look at their books. Yeah. And on Friday, they declared bankruptcy. It was a very quick escalation of things for them. 
It is it is a crazy story. So again, if this was a U.S. company, if it was based in the United States, maybe we don't have the regulations set up, but the United States is at least starting to try and get into that world of regulating. Yeah. So because we don't know, or these companies don't know what the regulations will be, they set up offshore in different countries. Uh, is there any Bahamas laws that oversee this stuff? Are they trying to catch up and, and play that game too, or are they lax and that's how it's designed? I, I think it's a little more lax over there. I can't uh, uh, cite any of their, their laws by uh, offhand. You didn't pass but, the bar in the Bahamas. <laughs> I did not pass okay. the Bahama bar. Okay. But, <laughs> I, uh, my presumption is that it's a little more lax, and that's why companies are setting up uh, overseas right now, because they don't have to worry about uh, restrictions and regulations uh, from those governments being uh, uh, put, placed on them. Okay, so billions of dollars essentially down the drain, or I guess the investment money that has been invested down the drain, and now that they're in bankruptcy, everything is frozen. What does that mean? So if you were a customer of FTX, it means you can't access your funds right now. Okay. Like everything's on lockdown. So Does it just freeze wherever it was before? You have X amount of coins as you did before? Or does the value of your account still go up and down based on the value of the coins you hold? So you still have uh, the same amount of coins in there. Okay. But those coins are fluctuating day to day. Yes. So it may go up, it may go down. As we've seen the last year, it's been going down. And being able to uh, cash out, uh, essentially, it's impossible. is... Yes, and it makes it very difficult when you could be seeing your assets depleting over the next couple months while this bankruptcy proceeding uh, is ongoing still. 708 says, lost a ton of money on FTX. Do we still have to pay capital gains? Do I just go to jail? What happens with that? So it's it's, it's, it's bad news. It's bad news. So um, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act that was passed in 2017, it removed you taking a deduction on your Schedule A, like itemizing these losses. Now, uh, what you can do, once it's uh, been decided that this is a, um, it's a worthless asset, mm-hmm. that you can't get it back, FTX is not going to be issuing any of these funds back, then you could write it off as a capital loss, but you're limited just to what the basis is. Uh, it wouldn't be the fair market value. So if you paid $50,000 for Ethereum or Bitcoin and you're holding it, but Right now, it's valued at, we'll say, 150000 You tripled like, your money, in, yes, in theory. Yes, so you would have a fair market value of 150000 in there, but you could only write off the loss of the 50000 that you initially put in, uh, your, your basis in the, uh, in the asset. And, and, that, and a write-off doesn't mean you're getting that money back. You're it, just writing it off exactly. your, your, your adjusted exactly. gross income. It could, be, it could be used to offset other capital gains if you had any. And then oh. you're limited to only $3,000 on non-capital gains. Yeah. So if you um, you know have a significant amount of uh, self-employment income, it, you could only use $3,000 of that loss to offset your self-employment income, then it just carries forward to the, the following years. Well, we say this is going into bankruptcy court. Is that in Bahama bankruptcy court, or is that an American bankruptcy court? No, no, it'll be in the U.S. bankruptcy court, and uh, it does not move quickly. So it's, it's going to be a very long, drawn-out process, and right now we're recommending that most of our uh, clients, they sit tight that they don't try to claim the loss right now until the bankruptcy proceedings uh, run their course because they might end up receiving um, a portion or uh, hopefully all of their uh, investment back. And if they do claim it as a uh, as a capital loss, then they're going to have to report it as ordinary income. And that ordinary income is taxed at a very high rate yeah. compared to capital gains. 
So I've obviously Gordon Law Group, you guys have done a lot of work with cryptocurrency. You guys know this stuff. Mm-hmm. Have you had customers from FTX reaching out to you guys? Uh, not yet, since it, it just happened yes. on Friday. But I have a feeling that <laughs> it's um, there, there might be an avalanche of this. If someone is harmed by this, can they reach out to you guys? Is there at least to talk to you all about it? Uh, absolutely. And what we would do is uh, we could develop a plan to move forward and how they're going to, um, uh, I guess, address this issue in their tax planning for 2023. Is This is going to be a uh, significant loss for a, a lot of people. I mean, they had a lot of funds signed up in here. It's one of the largest um, uh, crypto exchanges in the world. And I feel like a lot of people are going to be, be in some trouble. They're very concerned about this. When some people are saying this is the end of coin-based uh, currency, other people are saying, well, stop, let's let's hold on. This is a bump in the road, perhaps, for cryptocurrency. Blockchain technology is still really strong. There's a future. Where, where do you s- sit on that fence? I know this is hard because, obviously, you guys know a lot about this world. Where do you think? I, I don't think it's going away. Mm-hmm. I, I still think that it has a very strong foothold in um, the, the everyday person's life, that they're, they're using this to uh, not only as an investment, but also as you know, a decentralized uh, finance like type of uh, payments. Like you, you can use this without it being re- recorded if you don't want to, uh, uh, I guess, sort of to be off the grid, if you wanted to purchase a... Uh, uh, Whatever anything, it is. Anything. It's off the grid a little bit. Yes, yes. And a lot of people uh, enjoy that privacy. And I don't think it's going to go away. I think this was a pretty big hit for it, but it's um, likely going to be sticking around for foreseeable future. I just got a text from the 6 3 I'll have to confirm this. There's a lot of rumors flying along, but I saw that uh, this person texted in that a Canadian teacher's fund had funds there. I don't know if maybe some of oh, these wow. pensions groups were investing in some of this, at least part of part of what they had, mm-hmm. potentially seeing a giant upside. But that's a whole other thing, right? I mean, yeah. th- this is going to have ripple effects for weeks, I imagine. Oh, a- absolutely years. Like, it's... Uh... <laughs> It's big. It, it, it's yeah. This is this is very big. It's, as I said, it's about fifty billion dollars in assets that are now frozen. So it's it's going to affect a, a lot of people that invested in. Hopefully, there weren't a lot of uh, pension investments in yeah. this because that that's whew, that's no good, detrimental. All right. So if people have had any concerns, they've been affected by this. Gordon Law Group is a great place to go. GordonLawLTD.com is the website. Is there a phone number? I see one on the website I can give out if that's what you guys prefer in case people want to call. Contact uh, Gordon Law Group, 847-584-1426. But the website's a good place to get started, right? Oh, absolutely. All right, GordonLawLTD.com. All right, John Nagel, you broke that down well for us. I appreciate it. Thank you. (laughs) All right, we will take a break. Then we got the news and more. Then more coming up on Let's Get Legal. 720 WGN, it's John Hanson on Let's Get Legal. Someone texted in, is this your money matters? Talking about all this FTX. And we were talking about the legal ramifications. But I will admit that my uh, two shows that I host here, uh, they often do collide when money and legal issues come together. You might think you're listening to Your Money Matters. Nope, that's weeknights, Monday through Thursday at 6 p.m., we're here uh, just till 2 o'clock today, a shorter show because of Northwestern football, as you just heard Mr. Cat say. I just want to clear one more thing before we get to Professor Leroy. Someone texted in about the teacher's pension plan that was invested in FTX, and I said, well, there's a lot of rumors going on there. They immediately said, just look it up, John, <laughs> in a very polite way. And I did, and it is a true story. Ontario teachers have sunk $95 million into FTX in theory, a lot of that money is mostly gone. Um, but I just to put this in context, the pension fund says it will have a limited impact 
on the overall number because that represents 0.05 of its total net assets, which that also doesn't sound like a lot, but it's well, it's half a percent. No, it's not. I lied. It is uh, one-fifth of one percent. And actually, no, it's one-fiftieth of one percent. Point is, it's not all that much. <laughs> I uh, don't host a math show, and uh, Professor Leroy, you'll be probably not surprised to learn that I was not very good at math when I went to the University of Illinois, Um, but I do love talking to you, my friend. How are you doing? Thanks for joining us today. I'm well, John. Don't ask me any math questions today, please. Boy, I messed that one up. Professor Leroy uh, does labor relations (laughs) at the U of I and uh, is so kind to join us, even as Illinois is in the middle of a big battle against Purdue. And uh, we appreciate your time, uh, Professor. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, sure. Happy to be with you. Okay, so let's get on to what we wanted to talk about today. And obviously, this is the work we, we've chatted about labor relations a lot over on the show. And obviously, the workers' right amendment, which we still have not called yet. It's really confusing the way a constitutional amendment can get passed in Illinois. Some people have called that race, but as far as I've checked last time, the AP hasn't called it. But it looks very likely that it could pass. Um, Professor Leroy, is that your read of it, too? Is that what you've been reading from folks? That's my reading of it. There are two paths to enacting this uh, legislation, which would be a constitutional amendment. There's a 60 percent path, and that would mean if you looked just at the ballots that um, were cast on the amendment, the uh, proposed amendment would need 60 percent plus one to carry. Um, the figures are indicating 58 to 59 percent approval. The second path is the 50 percent path. You look at all the ballots, and many of us as voters vote on certain candidates, but we don't vote everything on the ballot. So that's the the, the overall group. In that overall group, if 50 percent plus one vote for this amendment, then it becomes law. And so it does. That's why people who are watching this closely say it is essentially passing. It'll meet the 50 percent threshold, not the 60 percent threshold. OK, so let's go under the assumption for a moment mm-hmm. that it does pass, which, again, we're not saying for sure. But let's say it does is Illinois really the first state to codify this in their constitution? As far as I know, that is true. Um, and uh, it, it really has uh, great significance uh, for the labor movement on the one hand, uh, and it'll be very disappointing uh, for the right to work amendment, uh, right to work movement, which is opposed uh, to unions in general. Okay, that would be, a, I mean, this is a pretty big deal. I mean, I know there's been some debate about how much this really changes. Some people say it changes a lot. Others say um, it's a little more nebulous than that. Where do you fall on, on this amendment in Illinois? I think it's a big deal. Um, here's why. Uh, let's back up half a step. Um, under our federal labor law, um, the uh, there's a provision that allows any state, and so far 26 states, by my count, have enacted so-called right-to-work legislation. All of our border states, Indiana, Wisconsin, uh, Iowa, Missouri, have Kentucky, they have these right-to-work laws. In those states, a union cannot enforce a dues clause. They can voluntarily solicit dues, but they can't insist on collecting dues, um, and that weakens unions. Um, so you can be, you can be resources. in a. You, sorry, I want to stop you there. You can be in a union. No, that's okay. You can be in a union yeah. and be part of the, the the benefit of the negotiating power of the union, but you don't have to pay your dues if you choose not to. That's correct, and it sets up a free rider problem. So people in the labor movement say. 
uh, and they're accurate about this, um, even if the union was voted in by a slim majority, the union has to represent everybody in the union. And that means even taking their cases to arbitration if they have discipline. Um, they, they don't they can't discriminate between dues payers and non-dues payers. And so, it, you know, this is a situation sets up where, you know, one person says, uh, I'm philosophically opposed to paying dues. Another person says, I don't care one way or another, but I just don't want to have my money spent like that. And Michael and John over there are paying dues. They'll, they'll cover for me. So that's the free rider problem that's involved uh, with this. Then there are people on the other side who are philosophically opposed to providing any financial support to a union. And so in a place such as Illinois, if they are represented by a union um, and they are in the private sector, they have to, um, and, and their contract has this provision, they have to pay dues. And so... What this comes down to, John, is whether unions in Illinois continue to have power and influence as they have for decades in the state. I will just add one more thing, and then uh, you know we can take it from here. But assuming that uh, the House of Representatives um, carries for Republicans, I would I would imagine they will have a national right to work law. Um, and uh, President Biden would veto it. But the point of that would be to prevent any union in the United States from collecting mandatory dues. Um, and that's that's the thought behind the labor movement pushing this amendment. Because hmm. let's say the House did pass it. I, I, the Senate looks like there's a good chance it'll remain Democratic. As you said, President Biden would never send, sign anything like that, and there's no veto override power the House would have, which whatever makeup it will be. If, they, let's say, a right-to-work uh, law was passed federally, would these state constitutions supersede it? Or no, federal law would over, <laughs> overshoot state, or would this get adjudicated in the courts? I know we're going down a line of hypotheticals here, but I'm curious. No, I've thought about that. Others have thought about it. You always ask easy questions. I'm being facetious. That's a hard question. Uh, I don't think we've had that issue presented before the Supreme Court ever. I think it would be quite remarkable for a Supreme Court to um, rule that a state constitutional provision that was enacted by voters can be preempted by federal legislation when the state puts it in the Constitution. I mean, that would be a total rejection of any notion that states have rights uh, to legislate in these in, in matters generally. And it would be another form of nullifying the, the wishes of voters. Right. But if, if you were to somehow, this I can't imagine a situation where this just happens, where the U.S. Constitution became right to work, then that could supersede state constitutions. I mean, that's been adjudicated before, that sort of thing. But uh, we're going down yes. into the weeds here a little bit, Professor, which we often do, Professor Leroy from the University of <laughs> Illinois. And I love it. I have a few more questions for you. Do you mind if I put you on hold sure. for just a minute or two? I'm good. All sure. right. We're going to answer a couple more questions. And if you have any about the Workers' Rights Amendment, please, 312-981-7200. We got a little time after this on Let's Get Legal. 720 WGN, we're talking about the Workers' Rights Amendment, which has not officially passed. A lot of indications are that it has, though. We're waiting to see for the official call. We've got Professor Leroy from the University of Illinois joining us. He's a, a labor uh, labor law expert on this sort of stuff. And the Illini tied it up twenty one twenty one, Professor. So there you go. Good to hear. All right. So the law title, uh, the ballot title and the the, 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 um, the language in it 
said that this new amendment would also prohibit from being passed any new law that interferes with, negates, or diminishes the right of employees to organize and bargain collectively over their wages, hours, and other terms and conditions of employment and workplace safety. And that the folks at the Illinois Policy Institute, we've chatted with Austin Berg on uh, this show and other shows as well, and on the Mincing Rascals podcast, essentially means that if, if a contract between local leaders and their um, their union was you know established that no state law could overtake what has been negotiated between the union and the municipality. Um, do, do you see that as correct, or do you feel like there are there's enough wiggle room in this amendment that a lot of this stuff could end up in the courts if this thing is passed? That's a long question. I hope you understood. I, I get the the picture. I, I think that uh, Mr. Berg's assertion is true in some circumstances and not in others. You know, as you've been talking about, we 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 think of hypotheticals, but courts only deal with actual cases and controversies. So I, I don't accept that as a general proposition. I would just say, sort of as a counterpoint to it, when uh, Governor Rauner um, was uh, newly elected, he went to Republican strongholds in the Chicago suburbs, um, encouraging uh, local jurisdictions to pass right-to-work ordinances. Um, and so that, in, in effect, would be an effort uh, to prohibit, uh, let's say, union security clauses, um, mandatory dues, and and perhaps it's ambiguous, prohibit collective bargaining, uh, um, even in the private sector, in their suburb. Um, Lincolnwood is one that I recall. It really doesn't matter where. Um, to the best of my knowledge, they didn't pass. I think the this amendment was passed also with an eye to a day when we would have a Republican General Assembly and a Republican governor who would put that um, before the General Assembly and, in effect, negate uh, collective bargaining rights in municipalities, period. Um, and so I think that was part of the motivation behind this amendment. Yeah, it's an interesting because a lot of people have been texting in about uh, a Supreme Court case in 2018, and I don't want to put you on the spot, Professor Leroy, so you can always say, let's uh, chat about that next time, too, give you a chance to you know prepare accordingly. Uh, Professor Leroy, by the way, joining us last minute here on the program, I just want to say, and doing an incredible job. Back in 2018, uh, the Supreme Court overturned 40 rules of precedent by ruling that mandatory public sector union dues are unconstitutional, and people are texting in about that too. Yes, but as it currently stands, these right-to-work states, they are going after private unions, right? So that while that may be true for public sector workers nationwide, it is still possible for private sector workers to be mandated to pay dues, correct? That's essentially correct. I have to say, uh, our listeners are on the ball. I mean, this is the Janus decision, 2018, and it says that uh, individuals have a First Amendment right of association and speech not to support unions with their dues. And that is a that's a public sector matter because the First Amendment applies to government entities. The government can't interfere with our associational rights or speech rights. That is the ruling. Um, I would just note parenthetically, the financial harm to unions as a result of Janus have been less than uh, people thought. Really? Uh, unions. Uh, yeah. And well, just take a look at how important labor is, whether you're, you're, you're Democratic, Republican or none of the above. Unions are playing a very important role in Nevada in turning out the vote 
um, uh, you know, with the curing ballots and things like this uh, that, that that weren't properly signed or whatever mm-hmm. the issue is. So unions um, are very effective um, um, working almost exclusively uh, for Democratic candidates, not always. So um, listeners are right. The, this whole discussion we're having about this amendment is blunted by the fact that we've got this broad ruling. Now, and it's sort of an, a variant of the question that uh, listeners are texting in is, so um, do you think um, that this constitutional amendment overrides Janus? Right. In other words, can't and, and yeah. There I'm stumped. <laughs> yes, and, and let me let me just let me set this up again for people. What you're what you're asking and and stumped about is okay. If this voter rights amendment passed in Illinois, does that mean now that unions can public sector unions can mandate union dues from their workers, even though the U.S. Supreme Court in 2018 says that no public sector worker could be mandated to do it? And we're stumped. We don't know, right? We don't know. I mean. Uh, I will just say, just give an opinion, not a prediction, but I would expect the Janus decision to still hold. Yes. And I would be concerned in general about the idea that states can legislatively overrule a Supreme Court ruling that is very clearly stated. Trouble. Um, to me, that, that sort of raises the prospect of dividing our nation, and, and the Supreme Court is the final word on the law of the land. And so I would find it troublesome to, to think that, because it works both ways. If If Republicans can do it in one context, Democrats will do it in another context, and then then we unravel the system. Uh, so I don't know where that's going to head. Yeah, that's interesting, and that brings up the broader discussion about states' rights, and the Supreme Court has, you know, especially recently, has definitely leaned on the side of letting states do what they want. So I think that in instances where they are clear in that they this is a national thing, uh, I, I think they won't take a liking to the idea that a state... Uh, where they've explicitly said this is not a state-by-state issue. If states think that they can overrule the Supreme Court in that sense, I imagine uh, that that might be met with resistance, I guess you could say. I'll buy that. And no, that's my, my okay. first blush. And thank goodness we didn't have to decide these things today. Yeah, right. There you go. You can go watch the fourth quarter of the Illini football game. They're tied up, Professor. Thank you so much for hopping on last minute with us. I appreciate it, okay? I enjoyed it. Be well, John. All right, we're going to take a break, and then we'll wrap things up next on Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. 